Welcome uh, to our panel. My name is Curtis Valentine. I am the co-director of the Reinventing America Schools Project um, at, the at the Progressive Policy Institute, a DC-based think tank. I'm also the founder of Real Men Teach, a national campaign to diversify the teaching profession. I want to welcome you all to the Raj Reports podcast. Uh, this podcast and this event and this discussion is in um, collaboration with Ed Choice. Um, and I want to thank my brother Emory Edwards for bringing this uh, to ASU uh, GSV. Um, this is an immense pleasure for me to have uh, these two brothers um, here uh, with us today. Uh, two of the brightest, greatest minds in education, period. Um, and I'm not sure whether they've been on a panel together at the same time, but no. um, we do have a Philly connection. Um, as we should. Uh, as we should. <laughs> I am, uh, as they would say, uh, a Jersey Bull, uh, and, and actually, Young would, bull. Uh, and I would, you know, come this to like come to South it. Street on Saturday nights. Um, um, but uh, from the, from the um, metropolitan area. But uh, again, so so uh, excited to have this conversation. So I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves. Uh, both Matthew Mugelfields and Sharif El Meki. Um, Tell us who you are, uh, what you do, and what about your work most excites you right now? Uh, who you are, what you do, uh, what about the work you're doing right now most excites you? I'm going to start to my immediate <clears throat> right uh, with uh, Sharif El Meki. Yeah, great to be here. Good to see everyone. Um, glad to reconnect. We've done this a bunch of times. Oh, yeah. It's our first time. Our first um, time. Yeah, so Sharif El Meki, I'm a. Uh, Activist, child, grandchild of, of activists, was an educator for, a school-based educator for 26 years, and then now at the Center for Black Educator Development, I work as to rebuild the National Black Teacher Pipeline. Uh, what excites me the most is when we get to work with youth directly um, and, and share with them, like pull the curtain back about like what teaching and leading classrooms could look like if they haven't experienced it uh, themselves. And so seeing them being in those positions of leadership, uh, teaching first, second, and third graders, like watching that is, uh, matter of fact, one of our apprentices is over there, and uh, Horace Ryan's the third, like, you know what I mean? He's, uh, mm -hmm. And watching him teach first, second, and third graders uh, is, you know, for me, is, is, that's the most exciting piece. Outstanding. Matthew Fields. Uh, yeah, Matthew Mugglefields. Fields. Um, I have spent the majority of my career as an education entrepreneur, uh, education technology sector. Uh, I'm 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 an ASU GSV OG. I think I <laughs> went to the first one of these things. Uh, Alvin and I, we we OGs now. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to see it has demographically advanced since those days. Some of us have been pushing for that, so it's great great I to like be that with you. Demographically advanced. Yeah 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 yeah. And and uh, uh, now I've spent the last five and a half years or so. Um, um, on the executive leadership team of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, um, HMH. Uh, I, the company has four uh, divisions. I lead two of them. So um, supplemental and intervention solutions. Uh, also, uh, I'm president of the Heinemann uh, Publishing Division. And I am uh, also responsible for our shared learning uh, platform. So that supports all of our products. And so in a lot of ways, the thing I'm most excited about is uh, the, 
the possibilities that this moment of um, of, of transformation and change um, that we're in in education uh, presents. Uh, many of us who've been working in particular aspects of the problem space around teaching and learning um, have have labored uh, for, in my case, a couple decades, um, hoping that one day we would have opportunities to accelerate the adoption of, of useful technologies, I have a very particular definition of what that means, and we can get into it later, um, that could give teachers uh, much needed assistance in, in their very difficult assignments. And, um, you know, one of the sort of silver linings of the pandemic is the uh, increased adoption of certain forms of educational technology. Um, at HMH, we're in 90% of U.S. schools and, and classrooms. Um, and so that's a powerful opportunity that we have to touch lives and to also help teachers um, get time back so they can focus on the higher order things like creating um, community in their classrooms and deepening meaningful relationships with their students. So um, that's what I'm excited about. I want to jump uh, right in with a quote. Um, Tony Morrison uh, once said, I tell my students, when you get these jobs that you have been so brilliantly trained for, just remember that your real job is that if, that if you are free, you need to free somebody else. If you have power, then your job is to empower somebody else. Sharif, how does your work free others? In the spirit of Toni Morrison's quote. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we free others, but we help, you know, youth educators, you know, free themselves, you know. Um, but I love that quote because I also think about, you know, it pushes you to remove, you know, if you think about it correctly, you know, remove your ego from the work. Because um, a lot of people think that they're in this universe to do something, you know, to get the shine, to do, do the work. But when you actually think about it, you know, your biggest contribution could be, um, in the context of this quote, the biggest contribution could be who you help, who and what you teach, right? Like, you know, so if you look at it from that angle, then that is really, they're the ones that's going to free. Um, uh, that next generation and the next people. And uh, I, matter of fact, earlier today, I uh, tweeted out, you know, a picture of me and one of my former students who's now a teacher, you know, really dope teacher um, out here in California somewhere. And, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, each one teach one. I'm, and I've always thought, like, no, each one teach a thousand. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, what are you exactly. talking about one? Like, what's one going to do to yeah, the movement? Yeah, like, no, yeah. each one teach a thousand. So yeah. when I think about her and all the students that, you know, were in the school, then what she's doing and all the folks that she's uh, teaching, like, you know, like that to me is just really about advancing the work. Um, I, I won't see it, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, it's going to be hell to pay for the system, you know what I mean, <laughs> with, these, with the folks who are, who are uh, you know, coming up. So Yeah, I, I like the way you said I mean, freeing one person and whoever they free, whoever they free, this is a cascade effect. Uh, Matthew? Uh, yeah. I, I love that, as you know, I love that quote. I, I try my best to live it. Um, uh, for a little bit of history. So I am the, um, I am an immigrant born in Barbados um, and came to the United States to the suburban Philadelphia area at the time, I think. Uh, and 
Uh, when you I was to put the jacket over, it. yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, when I was I was ten years old and was put, um, like many of the students at the time, uh, was told if you weren't from certain countries, mostly in Europe, you were put back one grade level and in the lowest track, uh, back tracking. And um, and I went from being a top student in my homeland, which has a very solid school system, to to being tracked towards and told at ten years old, I need to think about was I going to be a plumber or Carpenter, noble professions, but you know, shame on them for telling a ten-year-old um, that those were his only options. And so, kind of coasted along, and then I had some educators who in, in, interrupted that malpractice and insisted that I get on track to go to college. Um, and in making a, a much longer story short, stayed. In, those folks stayed in my life, made sure I got back on track. Um, insisted that I go to Morehouse College, mm-hmm. um, and when I couldn't afford it, my family couldn't afford it, raised money in the community to send me to Morehouse. Um, and the night before I left to start my freshman year, they said, now go do for other kids what we just did for you. And, and, and my career, in many ways, has been trying to honor that promise on the one hand, but also scratching the itch that I had to be an entrepreneur since I had a paper route, uh, to get my family out of poverty, Right. Um, but yet keep that promise. And so it's taken different forms. I've been fortunate that I spent most of my entrepreneurial career uh, working and um, uh, building companies that were majority minority, that were grounded in community. And then five or six years ago, found myself in the, for me and those who know me, the awkward position of then coming into uh, what is the most senior leadership role in this industry in a company that was shaped and looked a lot like uh, things I had n- never done before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it made it my business um, and, and um, you know, have found great partners in trying to transform the organization. And so today, my way of honoring Tony Morrison's quote is not just inside of the organization and how we do the work and making sure that, you know, our children see themselves and are affirmed in the solutions that we create but that, um, that our systems and solutions are supportive of educators that are, are trying to um, change the trajectory of our nation's education system. And more and more, so much of my work as a leader is helping build other leaders. Um, and so both inside our organization and as Curtis knows, outside of our organization, I have really prioritized and tried to prioritize black leadership as a key dimension of how we transform education in this country. It's helping develop black leaders um, across the ecosystem. That's the other thing. So many of you, you know, maybe this is your first time at ASUGSV or seeing this, but we often don't think of education as the second largest sector of the global economy. There have been conferences like this going on before we knew they were around. I went to the, a conference like this when I was in grad school, and it was literally me and some Puerto Rican dude from, <laughs> from Stanford. And we looked at each other and like, you know, where, where are we? And they were talking, as Curtis said, about our children in our community. So I think it's, it's part of that work is trying to create spaces and where rooms like this exist more often. Yeah, and I'll, Kurt, I'll just add, you know, this idea of like, you know, sometimes people think like, well, I don't have that power to do. That was just relationships and connecting. You know, the dots for folks. You know, you had uh, Dr. Gilbert on uh, earlier, right? And so, 
I was campaigning for Dr. Gilbert to come to Philly. Like I was not, I was not. <laughs> that was where we're like, no, you need to be in Philly. You need to be in Morehouse. No, it was before I even knew Morehouse. Is the campaign over? It's over. Yeah, 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 it's over. No, every, you know, she's exactly in, you know, part of this constellation where she needs to be. But the the conversation was, you know, I did, Morehouse wasn't in the picture no, at that okay, moment. Right. You know, it was more or less like, no, we need you in Philly. We need you in Philly. And then she was like, hey, you know, I got this Morehouse uh, thing. Then Horace was he's trying to figure out which school. I'm like, oh. You need to connect with Dr. Gilbert, gotcha. right? And like, and now, like, what they are <laughs> so doing true. and what she's so doing true. at the center is like just—I yeah. mean, it's phenomenal. Like, you couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine. I didn't have a vision for that, but I knew they needed to be, you know, um, connected yeah. uh, when you know when we were. Uh, yeah. So yeah. that to me is also part of that that quote. So Matthew talks about he loves that quote, and, and we've, we've discussed this quote in a different different space. Um, and a good brother, uh, Dr. Chris Emden, who's not here, um, did a very big piece on this. And he mentions one part of the speech about the um, if you are free. If. And so he, he sort of talks about the fact that we have to recognize in some spaces, in some terms, that we are yet free. Um, and it's the idea of the work that both of you are doing around the future of the educator. Um, and I want us to sort of predict ourselves forward um, 2050. I like, I like to use this point because it allows us to sort of to look forward to a date and time that we can work backwards from. And the educator in 2050, how, what are we doing now to ensure that that educator is free? Uh, uh, and operates in a, sport, a space of freedom and how they move, um, how they present themselves, how they walk into that space, the information that they are, that they are sharing with their, with their learner, how they can self-actualize who they are, what their greatest talents are in the education, in the classroom. What do you, you know? And so I want to start with you, uh, Matthew. Project forward uh, the future educator. What do they look like? Um, what skills do they need to, 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 to be successful? What training do they need to be successful? What materials do they need to be successful? That's all. <laughs> if anybody can answer, but, 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 but you're doing it. Which yeah. Is, which is like, I, can, yeah. I can ask anybody. But yeah. <laughs> we talk a lot about uh, trying to create an era of high-tech, high-touch education. Mm. Um, so the, the idea is um, powered by advanced technology, but, but centered on human connection uh, and relationships. And so kind of challenging this whole notion that these things are somehow oppositional, these things are, mm. are, are actually quite uh, reinforcing. If you get the tech right, it frees up teachers and, and their ability to um, build deeper relationships with their students, which is the lifeblood of education. Um, I think future educators, um, because many of what we consider today sort of the quote unquote hard skills, I hate that term, but translate, people know what you mean when you say it. Those sort of hard skills are, um, are you know, sort of machine enabled and, and um, you can then as an educator focus on the higher order, more important task of helping students, you know, you're a community builder, that future educator. You're, you're a connector, um, a, a, a 
your students, you're maximizing the utility of that, of that space and those relationships. You're connecting to families in a different kind of way. You're inviting uh, families in. I think one of the gifts of the pandemic, quite frankly, was many families got to like see what was actually happening. Um, uh, there's probably less traumatic ways <laughs> for us to create that kind of visibility uh, for, for families so that they can play the essential role as co-educators um, in the process. Um, and then, and then I, I have this um, notion, and it's beginning now, as educators, as, as collaborators amongst themselves, and not being, it's not being such an isolated profession. What does it mean if your team teacher is in Ghana and you're in, you know, West Philly? Um, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, what are the possibilities uh, that can be created there? I think, I think of all of that. So, so how do we, you know, the, the idea is really to enable more humanness by using technology to help us do that. High tech, high touch. Yeah. I want y'all to, that's a, that's a tweetable right there, bro. <laughs> I'm serious because I think, and you mentioned there's, there seems to be a, in some places a tension or perceived tension between the two, but you're saying it could also be uh, an asset. Um, two words, black Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Sharif, uh, you mentioned in a different conversation that you taught, you were an educator and principal for how many years? 26. 26. So 26 years from now is 2049, right? And so um, you mentioned Horace. So there is a good chance that Horace will still be an educator, either classroom or two leader in 2050, right? And so you, the, the seeds we're planting now, again, are not as far-fetched as you would think. Um, and so... What, does, what will Horace need um, to be successful for the students um, and what students will need in 2049? I mean, I think some of it we know. Um, you know we just look at the history. You know, when I think about me being in, in elementary school, they had no idea like what was coming. I mean, we watched the Jetsons, so we had an idea. Dick, you <laughs> yeah, know, Dick yeah. Tracy, yeah. right? You know what I mean? Like they're talking on their watches and all this kind of stuff. So they knew some of the things that were, you know, um, you know, were coming. But what they armed us with, the shields and the tools and the armor that they gave us was all, you know, what people call disrespectfully and a little dismissively as soft skills were actually the, the mm -hmm. hardwiring of what they, what they gave us as students, right? You know, so the, you know, the courage, the intellect, the literacy, the numeracy, the problem solving, the leadership, right? Like those are... Teamwork. Yeah, yeah, all of that, right? Like, just uh, how do you have, you know, uh, how do you channel, you know, your your uh, you know your skills and your thoughts and your ideas? How do you organize your your thoughts and your mind uh, and work with people, right? And like, how do you how do you yeah. have a servant leader, you know, orientation? So those are like really the hardwire. They don't look at it soft skills. They look at it, right. this is your core, and then you can add whatever else you want to you know to that right. they had no idea about a lot of the things that we're now just take for granted and i think and i you know i know that'll be very similar right like and i think often we're trying to raise kids or teach kids in the same way that we feel most comfortable which was played out you know uh, as soon as we got through school if yeah. not even um before then so i think a lot of it is like what's the hard wiring and then they will be the ones to adapt or create what that next uh what that next generation of, of things is 
uh, or are. And I think the other piece that I think about is really, I was reading an article the other day where they're like, 80% of, the, of people around the world can't see the Milky Way because of light pollution. 80%. And I was just like, wow. You know, and they showed this little island off the coast, coast of Africa where they can actually see it. So very few places where you can still see the billions of stars that are, that are out there. And I think about that on Earth. Really, I think on Earth, those stars are, are people, the human connection, right? So the constellation that we would have been able to see but can't because of light pollution, down here we can't see the connectivity or what we should be, the constellation of human mm -hmm. beings because of other type of pollution, mindset pollution, right? We can't see. We can't, I can't work with that part. I can't mm -hmm. work with it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like parallels, wow. universe, Earth. Um, and like, what does it, would it mean if we got rid of some of the pollution and made the connection? So that's what I would hope for my, so he's my student, my grand students, <laughs> you know, and his grand students that, that, that they would yeah. continue to have that type of connectivity. Cause really ultimately there's no individual win when you really look at it. It looks like it. There's no individual no win. If it's not a collective, if it's yeah. not in community, yeah. it's really a loss. Uh, for more than just that individual is for all of us. Yeah. Um, I, I know both of you, so I know parts of your bio that you have not mentioned that I think... This you next don't have to mention it now. <laughs> <laughs> we just keep... It's just a, it's just a, it's just, it's a three of us in this room about, and, a, and a podcast is going to go out to... <laughs> we can talk about the Eagles. <laughs> um, I know that, you know, Matthew, you are a co-founder of a school. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, that Sharif, I mean, you, you two are men who have created, led, driven what, what school looks like, not necessarily to the educator, but as a space. And so, again, 2050, you could create a school mm -hmm. in 2050. What does that look like? Is wow. it, a, it is a building. Is, okay. it, is it everyone gets their VR headset um, and a, and a, um, and a, I don't even want to call it education for Netflix. And uh, you could download and you could say, I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to binge on some, you know, um, yeah. you know, multivariate regression analysis. Um, I want to give you the freedom to do that. Um, understanding everything you mentioned before, high yeah. tech, high touch. Yeah. Um, community, the, the connection. Um, because again, I'm, you know, this idea of a quote that Dr. King said is the idea that during the movement, I'm just fearful that I, we're integrating into a burning building where we're doing lots of recruiting. And, and what the center is doing is bringing in hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of young people. But the space in which we're pushing them into, um, will we look back on this and say, you know what, that was our block. We, we brought them in, but the space was not ready for them, and they did not to what Chris Inden talked about. The space could not recognize their genius when they got there, and so what they, what, they, what they saw not fully appreciate what we brought to the table and saw our value as a liability. Um, and so talk about, again, this future that you, again, I'm not just, a, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not waxing hypothetical. You all both have started and led schools. Yeah. Let's, let's predict it forward. If you could do it all over again in 2050, what does that look like? Um, my mother used to always say, like, you know, everywhere's a classroom. And when I think about schools, it, you know, it's often like people are more interested in schools than education. Yes. Right? Because schools, like, protects a status quo. Like, whatever people think is this is school. 
um, and then they get schooling as opposed to like education, right? Like which I thought schooling can actually undermine your education, right? Like you, you got to go to detox centers a lot of times after you go to school, right? Like just to get your mind right because like, yo, what kind of experience? And you do that either in a community or you do that as you evolve and get older, like, yo, that was a whack experience, right? And so, you know, for me, it would be more or less around education. Like, I don't know if I would, you know, necessarily settle for a building and, and do that. Like, what does education look like? What is, what is the ability to access information and education and experiences? What would that look like? I mean, that's where I would spend, you know, most of my time. You know, when I think about some, you know, what America would consider third world countries and how they educate and how radically different and how, you know, um, more advanced um, it is, you know, for like, you know, human centered uh, effectiveness, you know, like that's that's really what I would be, um, you know, what I would be uh, pushing for. You know, when I think about when I first became principal uh, was 2000 and uh, um, I'm sorry. Yeah, 2003. And our students, we had this NASA grant. Our students were Skyping with NASA scientists. And that should have been, you know, and then I didn't really see it again until COVID, right? Like where people were using, you know, so way back then, this was like, you know, so that people, mm -hmm. but it depended on where you were. Who gave you access? Who, you know, right? Like, so they were talking to NASA scientists about their science project and, and doing experiments long distance and all these kind of things. So, again, it's like, you know, who has access. To, and if we didn't have the grant, we would have never, I would have never heard of it or thought of it or anything like that, where this was the norm in plenty of other, uh, plenty of other schools. You know, you have places that routinely take trips, you know, and international trips as part of their education. Right, like, because they're like anywhere, you know, you can learn. Hayes took kids to Ghana, right? Like, as part of, like, hey, this is part of your education. And so, whatever, whatever it would be, uh, that's what I would uh, hope. And I'm doing it, Horace is doing it, others are doing is like really thinking about what does the education look like and how do we ensure that experiences and perspectives are broadened so that blind spots are shrunken and so that they're, you know, really prepared to lead. Is it so you mean? So you, you know, those different questions. So this idea of future of school, future of education, and also this idea of learning. Yep. Right? People ask me all the time about the future. I'm like, well, there's learning, then there's education, and then there's the school building. Um, where you are, Matthew, you know, again, how do you see this, this, this future world, you know, and how much does how we define what learning and education mean in this discussion? Like, yeah. We have to have a common definition, right? Yeah, we do. I, and I definitely agree, like, you know, Schooling is one thing, education is another. That, that being said, I don't see schooling necessarily going away, but maybe there's a possibility and opportunity to transform. Just real quick on the Dr. Um, King quote, and this is a conversation that me and our good friend uh, Chris Emden have had many times. I think sometimes the lens in which we approach these things is almost suggestive that we aren't the ones in charge who are actually creating whether or not it, it is a burning house or not. In other words, that's the work of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, two, as leaders, that's why you need him on in doing what he's doing. You need me doing what I'm doing. We need to be in different positions on the field to ensure that we maximize the possibility of 
positive outcome that's affirming and supportive. Um, and sometimes we don't see ourselves as, no, I'm a creator too. Mm -hmm. Like I'm getting to decide whether or not this house is going to be burning or not. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's super important. Acknowledging then... You need independence for that, right? You need like independent tax, but you need, in, you need something. You, you need interdependence. Um, you can leverage... I mean, I don't put anything past our creativity is what I'm saying. I'm not presupposing a particular... Uh, outcome, because uh, I, I, I just, you know, I think that part of that's how we've been able to, um, you know, create many beautiful things in this world. So I don't, I don't necessarily, um, so if you accept my premise temporarily anyway, that we are creators too, then the question becomes, what do we try to create? What are the, what are the, what are the things that we should be doing? And I and I have um, Curtis this belief that like there's going to be many models and they're all and there are many of them are going to work and yeah there will be places where you know you got the VR headset or the glasses or whatever and you're you know I I I'm a skeptic on some of that stuff believe it or not um, uh, but I recently looked at a piece of software that took me down struck me down to the inside a cell to the size of the mitochondria and I was like oh I see the educational benefit of this now if if uh, because that's the thing like. One of the things people don't realize is that the innovations that stick are those that solve real problems. There's a lot of like, you know, things that are like, you know, cool innovations, technology in search of a problem. And then there are things that are actually real problems, pain points that we know exist today. How do I as a teacher customize or tailor uh, an appropriate course of study for 30 kids who are at different points on an achievement spectrum, who have different skill sets, who are coming in with different mindsets, who are in different social emotional places, et cetera. How do I do that task? That's what we ask teachers to do. And oh, by the way, you know, help them do better on the test at the end of the year and all that kind of stuff. I gotta believe that we're gonna make some meaningful progress on that assignment and that we're gonna enlist um, other innovations to help us do that. And it's going to take different forms. Some of it will be remote. Some of it will be learn anywhere, every place, every room. Every room is a schoolhouse, that kind of thing. And some of it will look, at least on the outside, very tra traditional in this set. But maybe the, the content, the conversations, the nature of what students are learning in a you know, post-chat GPT world. You know, I, I, I said chat GPT. That's a required statement at ASU GSB. I've said it now. Uh, I get some kind of points. Um, but in that world, you know, uh, maybe the content and the conversations are, are focused on other things in the classroom, but they may, may still look in, in, in what we would think of as traditional. I mean, the, the one thing I would just push on that, so I Please will do. hold on it. You said temporarily, so by temporarily, it's over. <laughs> it's over. Like, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, but the one well, thing is a panel. If we don't have yeah, this, yeah, 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 no, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the one thing that I can't help, uh, you know, I can't stop thinking about it. Just this idea of how long um, there's some things that have endured, uh -huh. um, like us, like us, but also the shackles on us. Um, and if we don't really think about it independently, that's what I mean by like all time. Like, I think, yes, the creativity, 100%. But we've also been creative with the leftovers. And that's what we did for Survivor. We've been creative with hog malls and chitlins. For sure. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's where we want to spend all of our we you don't know, all we, of our we don't want to survive we want to thrive exactly right Bettina right and so I, I think that's that's a part that I keep missing when we say we know people have said with evidence that you know there would be no lynching without the schoolhouse and if we also know that people say oh they let us in our schools but they don't educate us they crucify us mm-hmm. these quotes are from educational stalwarts from the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Carter G. Woodson, W.B. Du Bois, mm-hmm. right? One, they don't want you in school in some parts of the country. Other places, they'll let you in. And W.B., he went to school in New England, which mm-hmm. was supposed to be the liberal part, mm-hmm. right? So that's where, you know, the liberal spaces, the, the enlightened spaces. And he's like, they don't educate us, they crucify us, yep. right? And so that I just, you know, I don't want us to rely just on our creativity, ingenuity, and genius without also bolstering and protecting it and doing it on, uh, you know what I mean, uh, in the other spaces, you know what I mean? Like other, yes. that's what I mean, the independence, the autonomy, the, you know, the, uh, you know, black led, black founded, that type of space that's has a different mindset and orientation instead of, hey, let's use our creativity to make this shackle as beautiful you as it can. Don't, yeah, I'm not talking about optimizing mm-hmm. dysfunction, mm-hmm. but I'm also saying that we must also embrace the possibility, it's not even the possibility, the reality that if we look at our modern context, Sometimes we are the they in your statements, right? And if we have the power to be the they and to perpetuate oppressive systems and, you know, and, and, and do all of that, we have the power to change it too. If we have the right mindset. Because some of us, you know, wave that anti-blackness harder than the folks that trained it on. Uh, uh, Agree. Right? Because we think white, like anti-blackness actually preceded white supremacy you know, in a global sense. Well, break that down for me. So you get, anti- you're getting heavy now. You get no, no, heavy. No, you got. Just, you think about like anti. Educate me. Don't school me. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Deep learning. About, Deep learning. Like white supremacy. They, in the in the height of you know like just the the what they called the dark ages uh-huh. for them, they weren't thinking they were supreme. Oh, I see what you mean. They were being taught by Moors. Right, like that was flipped at some point, right? Like when when they, when they took stuff from Egypt, when they burned, you know, and stole uh, stuff, you know, like some of those folks that, that are quoted, they were spent decades in Egypt and then went back, right? And they were criticized, like, no, don't bring foreign information here, right? So at, at that point, you know, you started seeing like white supremacy, white supremacy, but they weren't even the first, right? Like the Arabs were involved in this. There were other folks who were involved in anti-blackness. Okay, and so that continues to be a thread throughout and so i think you know and it's internalized you you learn best from your oppressor everything you learn ain't something that you're changing sometimes you just learn it and absorb it and then regurgitate it so i'll just say like i agree with you like it, it the dysfunction isn't just in one space and so yeah i think sometimes i, I hear i hear creative I, I, with the we're just like all right here's the status quo let's let's fix it let's tinker with it let's address it and the whole time, it is reinventing itself to survive, push back, to and and to trick you into thinking you changed it. Hey, see, I, 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 so, so, to me, I hear what you're saying, and it sounds incredibly deficit-minded. Oh no, I'm, I'm, and the, and the system I, is a deficit. Like, and so if you don't acknowledge, like, this is this is a deficit. This system is a deficit. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like uh, no, I'm not saying that we're no, we're the exact opposite. The system, yes, I'm acknowledging the system. The status quo is 100 percent unadulterated, seeped in deficit. 
Now, what do we do about it? Do we tinker with it, or do we build I, and create something? I think I think that we have many lessons to learn from those who mm-hmm. came before us mm-hmm. in our in shared endeavor to maximize. We'll let you back potential. in in a second. <laughs> to, to, this is Philly, like the Jersey boy can just. You know what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just to, here in just our here. effort to maximize human potential. <laughs> And, and my mission is about maximizing human potential. Mm-hmm. Um, I really believe that. I believe that. I believe that we get in trouble when we think our assignment is, is tethered to the, um, the constraints of the past and not tethered to the lessons of the victories, too. Um, I really do believe that. I so, can't argue with that. So what, what I'm hearing, and this is something that I think at least what I'm hearing from Matthew and, and, and from you is that I want to put it back on, on Horace. If Horace is still in the classroom or not in the classroom mm-hmm. in five or ten years, it, if he's not in the classroom, it can be because someone who looked like him did not create the environment for him to, 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 to fully thrive. And it's, it, it can may, be. Yeah, it can be someone who looks just like him and, 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 and has the same background and say, we well, you know, I thought in this space with this person – I was good. Yeah. At the same time, if he's still in that space, it could be because someone who does not look like him embraced all this and pushed back um, and uh, understood his value in the light. And so this, this, this brings me to my question to you. And it's off a tweet that you, that you recently tweeted. And someone asked. Is it the joint that got me a, a block? Like, nah, I, don't, I don't think I so. No, no. Were you really? No. Well, 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 well. Saying in, this person's name could get you. Twitter? Yeah, they be yeah. Well, even yeah. now, even that Joker. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> saying this person's name could get you blocked in any any place. And so, someone asked you, "Who's invited to the cookout?" And and for those who don't understand, we're talking about white folks, <laughs> like. And you said John Brown and his sons. Um, and so I want you to tell this who who was John Brown. Um, why is he invited to the cookout? And for those who, who want to be invited to the cookout, those who want to be co-conspirators in this space who don't look like us, what do they need to get invited to this cookout? Yeah, that's not the one that got me blocked. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, one, I mean, it was a little bit of a, you know, trying to be a little snarky towards black folks who were like, invite folks to the cookout because they did a book club. Like, oh, so, so, what a book. Come to the cookout. I'm like, they don't, they don't deserve to come to the cookout because they joined a book club. You know what I mean? Um, remind me, after one of our folks was murdered in the street, you know, then you had white folks saying, like, I'm going to wear a safety pin and you know I'm safe. You know, it'll be safe for you to talk, right? Like, that. people were like, come to the cookout. I'm like, no, they can't come to yeah. the cookout. So for me, you know, John Brown, I mean, you know, most people have heard of him, but John Brown, I think, should be a national holiday. Um, you know, uh, he, you know, was part of the catalyst to spark the, you know, the Civil War. You know? So he was just like, hey, you know what? Negotiation is taking too long. Tired of, you know, eating around the edges. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to spark this. And so he made, as a white man with privilege, he, and this was ongoing. It wasn't like one of those just spur of the moment. He actually tried to get Frederick Douglass and Harriet to join. And they were just like, yo, bro, that's. That doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Like, what are you doing? So his strategy was flawed, but his commitment was there to say, like, hey, you know what? Like, no, we're going to advance this, uh, this movement a little bit further and faster than what's going on with these, you know, 
all these side arguments. And so I just appreciate, you know, a, a white person, him or others, who you're talking about like allies, like we don't need allyship you know, because he took risk. He actually took the ultimate risk. Like he's hanging from the gallows, right? But he took he took risk, him and his sons, you know, and, and other, you know, and, and black folks who were, who were, you know, part of this, you know, um, they would say it's treason, but it's like, is it really treasonous to ensure humanity is free, right? And so, you know, for me, that that's the level of commitment, sacrifice, um, and putting themselves in harm's way instead of just saying like, hey, I'm an ally, be in harm's way, I'm back here, but now, you know, I'll, uh, you know, I'll buy your book, you know what I mean, <laughs> while, while you're out there, you know, making the, the ultimate sacrifice over and over and over again. And so what would it mean to have more co-conspirators? What would it mean to, you know, and just a quick aside, when um, I was at a, a, a meeting, organizing meeting, you know, back in the day, and there were, it was a mixed crowd, and there were, uh, there was a white woman who said, you know, we're, we're going to a protest, and a white woman was like, hey, you know what, I will... Um, take the front line. And, you know, there was another white person like, no, don't take their shine, don't center yourself. And she said, like, like, no, my friend, she was with other, she came with some um, some black sisters. She's like, no, listen, they're, they can't afford to be fired right now in this protest. Like, we may, we may end up losing, may end up losing a job. And I'm going to put myself in that position because they've always been in the front. These sisters have always been in the front and put all this stuff at risk. It's just like, I actually benefit if they're freer, you know, there's more justice than, you know, it's not just them, right? Um, so for me, that's, that's who deserves to come to the, to the cookout, you know what I mean? Um, Matthew, we've, um, again, talked about this, this saying um, in, in a quote that you um, you often highlight is uh, nothing for us without us. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you are a self-proclaimed OG of ASU, GSV, <laughs> um, also the um, uh, creator of Innovation for Equity. Um, and so as we move forward into this future, into this world that we want to create, this world of our dreams, for lack of a better term, um, what does this mean? What does that term nothing for us without us mean as we move forward? And those who want to, who, who share our vision, who, who are listening and are saying, yes, um, I'm ready. I don't know what it fully means, <laughs> um, but, I'm, but I'm willing to at least take the first step um, towards to speak. And I want to come with you. Um, but I don't know whether I should be in the front or the back or the side or, you know, um, so what does that mean to you in, in, in work that you do? Well, I, I think it operates on a couple of levels for me. One is, you know, it's kind of straightforward, you know, making sure that representation matters, um, that, and, and it's about more than just representation, belonging, inclusion, feeling like, um, you know, the spaces that we occupy are co-created by those who, who occupy them. All of that is important and essential to building institutions, to making change happen. So on that level, I think it's pretty straightforward. There's another level for me as, as, as someone who spent, has spent now the majority of my career building software products and leading teams that build software products. 
And there's this uh, notion of what you call um, in, in the um, software development called contextual inquiry. So this is the, the practice in which you are observing users' behaviors because surveys are notoriously very bad tools for getting data. A survey is, is they're, they're valuable, they're good, good at some things, but surveys are too dependent on self-awareness and honesty. Um, and sometimes human beings don't have that. So one of the ways you evaluate what, what users actually prefer, what they actually want, um, is by just observing them like quietly and looking at them. Uh, contextual inquiries a practice in doing that. Um, there's, we talk a lot, software development, about having empathy for our users, um, being able to, to empathize with them. And this is, this, by the way, this is how they get us addicted to the apps on our phone, is because it's deeply, deeply um, scientific, um, right? But in order, now imagine if the exercise is not to just get you addicted to some social app, but actually, um, you know, help kids learn and accelerate the rate of math and address, you know, learning loss and, and reading, et cetera, uh, which is the stuff we focus on. That takes on a whole, another dimension because knowing your users and designing solutions that help your users requires that the people who are doing the building actually are able to even interpret what's happening with their users, are able to have proximity to, so you actually will, this is why, you, you can build better, more appropriate solutions if the folks that you are aiming to serve are helping build them, right? So, so from a, just a straight mission perspective, quality of execution of the thing we say we care about, I will even go as far as to say, and quality of do we generate the kind of, of market returns that we want, because um, if those things are aligned, then, then you can see why having um, uh, folks who are from the communities we serve involved in the process is so important uh, and so central. It ain't a nice to have. It ain't just like, oh, we're trying to like, you know, be good people. Yeah, we're trying to be good people, but we're also trying to actually solve real problems. And if you're going to solve real problems, you have to involve the people who, who you're serving. Contextual and, and that's what I appreciate about the space that you created and, and, and Shreve is creating is that oftentimes we have blind spots. To even know that there's someone in the room doing the, yeah. you know, the observations, like if we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so to know that that, that is um, a space for us to occupy and a um, and um, based where we're Latin, that is a blind spot. Um, and so as we wrap up, I'm, I want to um, sort of ask you all uh, the final question about about blind spots in many ways, particularly in the in, in the questions we're asking ourselves within this space. Um, and um, so, shout out to my my, my amazing wife. Um, she is Dr. Daria Valentine, but for one reason or another, you could call it gender bias. I often get attributed as doctor. I am not a doctor. My wife is a doctor in the family. But I often talk about you know if I would go back to school and do a dissertation, what would I study? Is it sort of like um, that's about five minutes and then I move on something else. But as you, you know, just sort of projecting out, if you were to have an opportunity to do get a dissertation, you know, uh, you know, two of you have done work that is uh, obviously worthy of an honorary doctorate and there are multiple coming. I know it. Um, but is there a research question that you say, I want to know um, that has not been done uh, that you believe is, requires deeper 
research and thought um, that we're not talking about at ASU, we're not talking about at um, you know, South by or wherever you want to call it. Um, what is lacking in this space? And if so, um, what, would that, what would that be? And I'll start with you, Sharif. I want to write a dissertation. <laughs> uh, but I, I would not mind just reading, studying, you know, just, you know, just learning, right? Like, you know, back to that piece. Um, I think one of the things, and it has been done, so I'm glad you added, you know, the context of going further and deeper, uh, is this idea of the black teaching tradition. You know, um, the TED Talk that I recently did, you know, that was what I proposed the name of it, that the black teaching tradition can save America. So for me, like what I would want to write a dissertation on or like what, were, what are the things that black educators have always contributed both to pedagogy and andragogy? What are those things that could be codified and shared um, and where other people train? So instead of them, instead of, you know, I don't even say 80% because some HBCUs teach this as well, but suppose instead of educators and others um, being trained on white education or white behavior theorists and theory, then come into black and brown schools armed, armed with that and armed, not just armed intellectually, but like armed with policy based off of folks that couldn't even imagine black kids and brown kids being in public schools. Um, but that's who are, people are still being trained on and, you know, um, and developing, right? So you got Freud, Piaget, Horace Mann, Skinner. If you read some of the ways that they talked about people, you know, people who weren't white, and we're still using those, you know, theories and, and frameworks. Um, you know, it's uh, like they're, they're black professors at Temple who assigned Diane Ravage as the book they want their students to read. These are black professors. They're like, Diane Ravage is our classroom book. Like, that's a travesty, you know. And so my thing is in this. And for the context, Diane Ravage said kids shouldn't learn about uh, African culture because it may make them feel superior. Right, so here's a white supremacist saying, like, you know what, don't learn about African culture. Like, that's, that whole black-centered pedagogy is, is uh, will make, they'll make them uppity. I mean, uppity Negroes. Like, so this is, but this is how people are using to talk about education. She said that? I yes. didn't realize she said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look it up. African pedagogy, mm. African-centered pedagogy, and, and what she, uh, you know, what she said mm. about that. But, um, so, like, what would the black teaching tradition, people who actually thought about Black children, teaching and learning, relationship between education and self-determination. Suppose that's what grounds you know, theory around child development, human psychology. You know, what did Amos Wilson say about development of black children? Suppose that's what centers and grounds and how much difference our collective experiences would be in school. Not just us, but also because, you know, what I mentioned in the thing, this is, this centers black children, but it's not exclusively for us. When black folks contribute things, it's really often is for humanity. That creativity, everyone can benefit from that um, because it's not coming from a deficit mm -hmm. basis. It's really coming out of love. Um, like, this is what you need. This is what I'm contributing to, to the space. I'm not trying to take you over. And, and that centering of black educators, not just for black students. No, it's, exactly. for all, it's, it's for all for students. Humanity. It's right. for, for exactly. all students. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Matthew, soon to be doctor. <laughs> um, so I'll, can, can I get two questions? Hey, uh, two two mm -hmm. things. I mean, so one doctors. actually I'm working on, been working on for, for, for <laughs> <laughs> working on for a good chunk of my career. So um, 
So uh, folks here know about Benjamin Bloom, Bloom's taxonomy, um, the sort of hierarchy. Of, I, I've been thinking a lot about that because I've spent a good chunk of my career. People think of Benjamin Bloom. He's a researcher. And he basically created the sort of pyramid, the sort of basic skills. Think like Mavlov's hierarchy. Needs. At the top is, you know, higher order creative. I think we're entering an age where we're going to be focusing a lot more on the top part of, of Bloom's taxonomy. But that's not why I'm thinking of Bloom. Why I'm thinking of Bloom is because he had another sort of famous seminal piece of research called the Bloom Two Sigma problem. Anybody uh, know about that? So, so Bloom's Two Sigma problems. Basically, he proved um, back in I think for paper published in like '84 that sort of um, a, a, a sort of one-on-one tutoring with mastery-based um, model um, was the most effective uh, means to helping students acquire uh, skills. And so what many of us in ed tech have been doing since that time is trying to figure out ways that we can enlist computers to help us approximate the performance delta between classroom teaching and that one-on-one tutor. Um, and so that's where personalized learning has come from. AI, a lot of the AI models are trying to do that. And so that's what I do in a lot of my day job. And we've made some great progress and we've got some amazing tools that are, are close, if it's a couple that are even better, especially when you pair that um, sort of um, individualized support with um, a skilled teacher. Uh, so so, so our, I'm focused and probably will spend a good chunk of the rest of my days focused on how can we do that, scale that, get it global, help students uh, address that. So that's one sort of big thing because we haven't, definitely haven't solved it. We haven't solved it in every context for every uh, student. Um, by the way, I'm citing all this research because I know all the Morehouse people are here too. So I'm trying, <laughs> trying to, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to, you know, get y'all some game too, free game. Okay, the other one I want you to look this up too is Hattie. Anybody Hattie's research? Um, so, so every year, like every couple of years, Hattie does um, a study of meta analyses. So a study of all the studies to say what's moving the needle um, in instruction. Um, and he looks at studies all over the world. The number one, um, and it measures effect size. So, so um, that's think movement against a standard deviation. So, way to think about that is just the 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 thing that is the factor that is most impactful to changing the outcome, right? So, the number one thing last few years. Yes, I know. I know. I know. What's in the narrative? Yeah, the exactly. You know where I'm going. Uh, actually, what do you think the number one thing is um, that determines uh, student outcomes? Quality uh, teacher? Uh, parent education. Parent education. But, it, say either one. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. Engagement. Anybody else? Any of the students going to guess? Say more. What do you mean? Lack of equity, but but think of it. Okay, flip it around. You're not deficit. We ask that here. So flip it around. What will drive the outcome then? If lack of equity is the, is the increased equity, so more resources and all that. Kind of, okay. Anybody else got a guess? Okay. Number one thing is something called collective teacher efficacy. Collective teacher. So that is the belief that the group of teachers have that their children actually can learn at a high level. 
And that's really important. And they didn't detect this particular one until recently because kids don't go to just one teacher's class. Right. So you have a great teacher who's like all about that life and mindset to the wazoo, doesn't believe in anything about your like, you know, uh, lack of your inferiority inherent and all that stuff. You, you know, all that. And then you go to English and somebody else does not believe in you. So and also what they found is teams, the schools are we, we talk about them like in these atomized isolated classrooms but they're really community they're they're ecosystems so if all those teachers are like we are going to like our children there's no failure what are you talking about it's just about you know like yeah how how we do today how we do this week all that so so collective teacher advocacy what i want to do some research on curtis with you (laughs) is how what we don't know is what are the best mechanisms to build collective teacher efficacy um, how do we replicate that? How do we how do we make that more present? And um, and what is the tying the two points together? What is the sort of like two sigma version of that? So if we were going to try and build build collective teacher efficacy, what's the way that we do that most effectively? And and in what role can technology play? As always, I'll join you with that. You know what I mean, my man. Yeah. Wow, so my man. You want in? Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Morehouse can be like the central part. You know, I, I, and I've, for two reasons. One, like we definitely believe, you know, like mindsets matter most. Yes. And at the Center for Black Educator Development team is here. Like, like we start all our work with mindsets matter most. Yes. And like, how does that, you know, how does that permeate? Because um, when people think about low expectations, it's always individual teacher to student. Yes. Actually, the low expectation is for themselves. Yes. I can't teach you. I can't you're make black. you. I can't get you're here. Too poor for you're, me you're, to get. You, you know I mean? can't get you yeah. there because of your circumstances, my and, limitations. And then if it's if it's multiple, right? You know what I mean. It can't just be. Oh, this year I was good. The next year, I got somebody with negative because they exactly uh, they do a longitudinal. You probably heard some of this at the yeah. previous, uh, you know, one of the previous panels that they were talking. Like the next year actually puts you further behind. Yes. Right, so you imagine, so there have been studies like, all right, I have a great teacher, great mindset, high level of self-efficacy, and I'm thriving. And the next year, I have somebody that has a deficit mindset. The, the outcomes are worse than if I didn't have the good teacher the year before. So it would have been better off to have two bad teachers instead of a great one and then a bad one. Yeah. Because the bad one, you know, if I had a great experience, then I have the bad one. I am now demotivated, disconnected, and I'm like, I know what I had, and now, like, I, I started the deficit, like, oh, I, my life is over. Like, I, I miss that so much mm-hmm. that I actually regress. Um, and so, like, that impact is everything. And then the other one is my son keeps uh, honeybees. So watch an ecosystem thrive where everybody is, like, a singular mission to get something done collecting pollen there and raising kids, blah, blah, blah. Like, it just shows, like, hey, here's the ecosystem is what's more important than the individual. A lot of people think the queen is the monarch, blah, blah, blah. That's not what actually happens. It's the collective hive that's the ecosystem that makes, makes them thrive. And that's why we need you doing what you do, me doing what I do, and, and millions more. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, wow. I mean, on that note, uh, I don't want to even add anything to that because that was such a, a drop the mic moment. Um, I just want to thank you, brothers, for letting me come to Philly for a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, no. 
Again, soon to be Dr. Matthew Meaglefield, soon to be Dr. <laughs> Sharif El Mekki. I'm Curtis Valentine. Thank you all again. This episode of Rise Reports. Um, thank you all so much for joining us today.